Complimentary football is the blueprint for success. Not the way you typically start a sermon. Complimentary football is the blueprint for success. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. Complimentary football. What is that? Is that after the game where both of the, the teams come up and they, they, they shake hands and they say, good game, well done, they exchange jerseys, that kind of thing. Is that complimentary football? I asked my wife yesterday, I was like, I was like babe, do you know what complimentary football is? She goes, um, is that like where, where you say, thanks for coming, here's a complimentary football? I'm like, uh, no, not even close. Complimentary football is a term that's been coined by successful coaches and some in the NFL. One of them, even more recently, Bill Belichick just won the Super Bowl. And uh, I'm not a huge New England Patriots fan, but they've won a few games, right? Complimentary football is typically talked about after a win and not after a loss. Usually after a loss, you say, I don't know what happened, we gotta watch the tape, like all that kind of stuff, right? But complimentary football is a blueprint for success. And what it means is a total team effort. It's when the the defense, the offense, and the special teams are working together for the same goal, right? Now you get it. Complimentary football. We're all working together for the same goal. It's where everyone does their job. When everyone recognizes what their job is, they do their job, and they work united for the same goal. The same goal is to win the football game. What would it look like if that happened in the church? You see, what if if everybody understood who Jesus was, they understood the good news of the gospel, what if we understood our identity in Jesus And what if we understood that Jesus called us to be participants and we understood the role that we play in the church of moving this gospel forward? And we all did that in lockstep and in unison together. What would it look like? Well, it would probably look a whole lot like the early church, right? In Acts chapter two, they turned the world upside down by their radical way of living. Today, we're gonna be looking at a text at the end of of Philippians chapter one, Uh, we've been in Philippians for two weeks now, we're going to go into the the second chapter, the first 11 verses, and hopefully today that we, what we read gives us that same blueprint for success, for gospel-centered unity. How do we strive and live in unity together as the church? Well, two weeks ago, we were in the first chapter in in Philippians and what we know about that when Pastor Ryan was teaching a few weeks ago that the Apostle Paul wrote to this wrote to this church in Philippi um, and in 10 years prior uh, in Acts chapter 16 the the church had been founded um, by the Apostle Paul going and sharing the good news of Jesus with with people there at Philippi and there was a woman who comes to faith in Jesus her name was Lydia she sold purple fabric There was another person who came to faith in Jesus, a demon-possessed girl. And there was someone else who came to faith in Jesus, the Philippian jailer. And if you read Acts chapter 16, you get the story of what the foundation of the church at Philippi looked like. So fast forward 10 years, the Apostle Paul is in Rome 
writing to this church and trying to encourage them in what they're enduring and what they're going through. And what we learned the last couple of weeks is the first week Ryan was saying that we have a partnership in the gospel. The Apostle Paul saying together with the church at Philippi, together with us, that we are partners in this gospel. And when we make much of Jesus, it is worth the risk. And last week we, we heard about how, how the Apostle Paul was in prison and what he said is what had happened, what is currently happening in his state, the sufferings, the beatings, his imprisonment was also happening to further the gospel. This, this circumstance was not hindering the gospel, but it was actually creating better opportunity for this, this spread of the gospel. And last week was all about this forward movement, this forward movement of the gospels. You see, Paul modeled this and he spoke from experience. He could have made excuses about his situation, but rather he, he rejoiced in his sufferings. He rejoiced in the situation in which he was in and he wrote to the church at Philippi to let them know, hey, this is not the end. And if it is the end, I'm gonna be with Jesus, so it's okay. So he writes this letter to the church at Philippi to encourage them. I think it's at this point in the text, if you've been following along, um, that we get to, to texts like this, we read stuff like this, that, that Paul is in prison and writing a letter and he's, in, um, he's actually joyful and um, the advance of the gospel is still moving forward and, and we can't fully wrap our minds around stuff like that because in our day-to-day, -day, it doesn't look like that. But the reality is when we come to passages like this, I think it's, it's fair for us to, to stop and to reflect and to focus our eyes on what Jesus is calling us to. You see, it's hard for us to read through passages like this and then go about our day to day and say, you know what, I, I'm not really growing in my faith. Uh, Jesus is not really changing me. Um, I'm, I'm just, I, I can't really figure out this Christian thing just kind of going through the motions we get caught in this disconnect. We hear stuff like that, that the boldness that the Apostle Paul had for the furtherance of the gospel, and then we hear that, and we try to teach it to our own heart of like, wow, I want that to be me. Jesus, help that to be me. Help me to obey. There's this disconnect. I think a lot of times we've been satisfied going to church as consumers rather than living as the church centered around the good news of Jesus. You see, consumerism has infiltrated the church because it's all around us. It's all a part of our culture. This individualism, this consumerism that says you uh, are the most important thing. And if you want it right now, you can have it and go get it, right? Consumerism is, is this way of life that says, um, I want what I want, okay? And, and, and when you approach the church that way, you ask the question like, what does the church have for me? You see, when the church functions like this, it works more like a marketplace with kind of the exchange of goods and services rather than what God designed the church to be. There's an unfortunate reality that maybe you've even heard here in some other churches that the church is a place where you go, where people come to learn, but it ultimately is a place that you, you learn about things that you yourself will never do, right? And hopefully that's not true about this church. Because we go about our busy schedules, we, we wake up, we go to work, we eat, we take the kids here, we take the kids there, we go to sleep, we wake up, we do the same thing, and it's just this cycle 
of rhythms of, of just craziness. Our busy schedules often don't allow us, we've not created margin for God because we're so consumed with, with what we have to do or what's in front of us. You see, when we go through the motions of life, that also trickles into how we go through the motions of church. We can also come to God's word too flippantly or too casually or too apathetically or not even come to God's word at all. We say we believe that it is the source of truth and hope and life, but we get so busy living life that we just disregard it. You know how I know that? I I know that that's true. All of what I said is true because that is my story. For the longest time, I grew up in the church. And if anyone had an excuse to understand or to know and to follow after Jesus, it should have been me. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, anytime the doors of the church building were open, our family was there. And I grew up with a misplaced affection because I really liked the things of God, but I didn't really love Jesus. And it took me a long time Looking back, like God showed me all of these steps in my own journey and my own spiritual growth to recognize that in my own story. So before we jump into the text and break that down this morning, I just want to encourage us to slow down, to pause, to refocus, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to respond to the truths of God's word this morning. If you've been following along in these journals, hopefully you got a chance to get one. I think we're out of them. Uh, but definitely a great opportunity, a great way to follow along in the book of Philippians. Uh, 450 of you did get those, so exciting. We're going to be on page 10 today. If you don't have one of those, uh, there's a Bible in the seat back ahead of you, or you can also read it on the screen behind me as well. I want to invite you to stand in reverence and honor as we read God's word together. I'll read it. You can go ahead and follow along silently, but I'll read God's word and then we'll pray. Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we could stop right there if we wanted to. So that whether I come and see you or I'm, in, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy and, uh, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for these truths this morning. And as a church, these these truths resonate within us and in our hearts today. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God who continues to pursue us and love us. Jesus, we pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is you'd have us to respond to this morning. God, that we'd be willing to examine our hearts and our lives and live obedient, unified lives centered upon the good news of you. That we would display that, that joy and that hope and that peace to the lost, dying world around us. Father, at this time, speak through me. Just allow us to to, to learn from your truth this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's probably one of the most beautiful passages of gospel centrality or gospel-centered unity in all of the New Testament. And in in some way, shape, or form, I kind of feel like um, Ryan threw me a little bit of a softball by by allowing me to preach this text because this text preaches for itself. All I have to do is come up and read the word and and God speaks through it. But up to this point in the text, what we've read in Philippians chapter 1 We've seen the Apostle Paul talking about his own situation, the encouragement that he had for the church at Philippi, and then saying that um, what's happened to me has happened to further the gospel. Um, He also says that, you know, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We read that last week, uh, Philippians 1.21. So it's been very focused around information from himself. In verse 27, he shifts it to more of a challenge or an exhortation that continues on all the way until chapter four, verse one. And he starts off by saying this, and I can kind of picture him saying this, like putting his finger up. He's 800 miles away in prison, but he's wanting them to get this one truth. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now we can stop right there and that'll preach and we can understand what it means and we can ask ourselves that question and, uh, and we can live differently today because of that, hopefully. But he's saying this, this one thing I want you to get, don't miss it. He's saying your manner of life, the manner of life that they were used to uh, was revolving around their citizenship as Romans. You see, Philippi was declared a Roman colony around 42 BC. Uh, there were some events that took place where there was a battle and there was a war. And, uh, you know, the the Romans were victorious and then they, they sent their people in to, to essentially colonize uh, the, the area of Philippi there in Macedonia. Something interesting I looked up this week and I'm not like a, a European history buff, but it, it is interesting to, to read about that kind of stuff. So in 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated and uh, Julius Caesar had an adoptive son named Octavian. Octavian was part of this battle Um, that would defeat this area and then allow the Romans to kind of take ownership of the the area of Philippi. Um, Octavian would then later become the Roman emperor and uh, they gave him the name Augustus. 
And I thought it was pretty cool because it's like you, you forget about stuff like that happening around that same time, that, that Caesar Augustus, um, we, we know of him through, through Luke's account of, of you know, the, the Christmas story or what we call the Christmas story in, in Luke chapter two, that there went out a, a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So it's interesting that all this is happening in the world, that God's using the, the, the church at Philippi, he's using Paul uh, to further advance the gospel and all this stuff is still happening as well too. I found that interesting that what he's saying is, is that the way that you live, your way of life as, as Romans, you see as, as, as the church at Philippi, they were proud of their name. They were proud of their Roman citizenship. And he says, let your, let your way of living be worthy of the gospel. What he's saying to them is conduct yourselves as kingdom citizens, not as Roman citizens. You know, this is common language for Paul. He'd say, um, you know, that, that you would walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We see that in Ephesians chapter four. We see it also in Colossians that, that he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But the word worthy there means this, this term of like measuring weight, kind of balancing the scales. And he's saying like, Make sure the, the way in which you live your life, the conduct in, in how you live your life is consistent with the confession of what you make. He say you're, he, he's saying to the, the church at Philippi, you're, you're citizens of heaven, citizens of the gospel, now live and act like it. Walk the talk. We've heard that said that way before. The beauty of the gospel is that, that we don't have to measure up See, the conduct of our life, we don't ever have to measure up to what was accomplished on our behalf because our righteousness is found in Jesus, what he has done. But at some level, there, there is a, a difference or an outward expression or a proof of those who are followers of Jesus. So if we were to be asked that question today about our own lives, are our lives worthy of the gospel? You see, James says in in chapter 1, verse 22, that we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So that disconnect that I was talking about at the beginning, like we're, we're supposed to hear it, believe it, and then obey it. See, the most detrimental thing that we can do as, as someone who calls himself a Christian is that our Christian life and the way that we live would, would actually deter or detract from actually from the things that we say. It would be inconsistent and our prayer is that the things that we believe or the things that we say we believe would actually be consistent with how we lived our life. Because we, we by faith, believe in Jesus, we are living every day in this posture of repentance and faith. And our righteousness is not found in our ability to achieve and balance the scale, but it's found in, in Jesus's ability. You see, Paul understands what the church was up against he knew that most of their opposition was not going to be outside of the church, although there really was a war and a battle going on, that most of, of the war happened within, the battle uh, and the opposition that the church at Philippi would happen within, within their own hearts, within their own lives. Um, the fact that we drag around the selfishness, this pride, this sin, um, this is something that we all are going to carry. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, as a church, from within, that's going to be the thing that probably divides us more so than the outside enemy. And I think that's true about a lot of churches today. 
We get more consumed with, with, with the things that we don't agree upon than, than what Jesus is calling us to. See, we get our eyes focused off of the real enemy and we, we look at ourselves. Some things I want us to see from this text this morning. Gospel-centered unity can happen in us when we have a unified boldness in the gospel. So if you're following along in your notes, a unified boldness in the gospel. See, Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father were one in, in John chapter 17. That was the heartbeat for Jesus, that we would be unified, that the church, the believers, the people that make up the church would come together under the banner of Jesus and be unified we would lay aside our differences and our preferences and be unified under Jesus. Paul says, whether I come and see you or am absent, that I would hear of your faith. So this is an outward proof of the fact that they had a bold faith. We see also Paul displaying this own boldness in his life as he's in prison writing. He's saying this boldness that I have to advance the gospel is not hindering the movement of the gospel. It's actually creating better opportunity. So a unified boldness in the gospel, we see two things in verse 27. The apostle Paul calls us to stand firm in one spirit and in one mind. Now this is a defensive position. If you can imagine kind of like this military term of being defensive, like this is, this is the defense, okay? Standing firm in one spirit and of one mind. We live in a world where so many people who call themselves Christians retreat in the face of adversity or opposition. But the reality is the gospel is not about retreat. The gospel is about stepping into the broken spaces and areas of this world to provide hope and healing through the person of Jesus. You see, we have a responsibility as a church to be unified and to stand together. And when we stand together, we're not alone. But together, we are unified and we can have a unified boldness. You see, when we stand strong in unity together and in harmony as a church, we display Jesus to the world around us. The second thing he tells us here as far as a unified boldness in the gospel, in verse 27, the apostle Paul says to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel, that's the offensive position. So you had the defensive position of standing firm, standing firm, being rooted and grounded, kind of in the trenches, and then you got striving together. This is the forward motion. This is all of us uh, together with this mindset of teamwork, of getting in the game, understanding our role, doing our part, understanding how God has gifted you, and then stepping in and being a part, a contributor to the work of the kingdom. You see, working together for a common purpose of getting the message of Jesus out is something that, that we can do together. Often in our lives, we've not really um, encountered opposition like those around the world have encountered opposition. It would probably be fair to say that here, even in the United States, our opposition or our suffering or our persecution is not as serious as what others face around the world. I know for a fact, for instance, uh, a former student of mine when I was a youth pastor, he has now graduated and he and his wife live and, and uh, he, he treks all around the world. And, and for about three years, he was in Nepal 
traveling from village to village just to, to encourage national pastors. Where in Nepal, it is illegal to have a Bible and to, to say the name of Jesus and to be a believer. And my former student, Josh, would you know, connect with people like Gyral Sam, where he would connect with me and tell me, he's like, Dave, you, you've got to pray for this man. Like the, 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 the pers- persecution that they have for their faith is like nothing you've ever known or thought of. You see, we have opponents to the gospel here and we are in a real war, in a real battle. But I think a lot of times we, we lose sight of what the battle is. And he says in verse 28, that we don't have to be frightened in anything by our opponents. For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is this boldness that we have in the gospel is a clear sign of saving faith. That we've been given a gift in salvation. He also says that we've been given a gift in suffering. So for a minute, just think about if you've suffered in your life, that it actually is a privilege that God has given to you so that you can look to him and recognize that he's using that and shaping you to conform you to the image of Jesus. It says he's graciously granted us salvation and suffering for his purpose. We have a unified boldness when our belief in Jesus compels us to stand strong and to strive forward together for the faith of the gospel. Second thing we see in the text, and if you're following along in your notes, we have a unified love for others. A unified boldness in the gospel is definitely a marker of true faith and a unified love for others is also a marker of true faith. John 13, 35, Jesus says this, by, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if, if what? If you have love one for another. And I think right now with uh, Valentine's Day just finishing up, we're, we're so consumed with love that it's just hard sometimes to, to love people because it's like we're just done with the whole love thing. I don't know about you, um, I'm not, like I have to, to try harder to love my family well right now because I think all of them have come down with influenza A. So since Wednesday, uh, we've had fevers and, and the, the, whole, the whole gamut. Uh, Kara, Kara told me last night, she's like, I've got a fever now too, so another one bites the dust. I've tried to bubble myself off and quarantine myself off so I didn't get sick, but uh, you think about it, pray for my family today as they're on the mend from this nastiness. So this unified love for others, when you think about it, sometimes it's hard to love people, right? And uh, people sometimes are unlovable. But we have to remember that when we were unlovable, Jesus stepped in and loved us, right? The beauty of the gospel is that he stepped in and loved us while we were broken and while we were sinners, one of the greatest pictures of, of unified love we see here in this text, it, it starts in the beginning of chapter two. He says, so, it starts with so, if there is any encouragement. And the word so is similar to the word therefore. Okay, if you've studied the Bible for any length of time, if you see the word therefore, you always go back to look to see why it's there, what it's there for, Right? You understand the context of, of, of the word therefore. The word so is kind of like that transitional contrast statement. Similar, it's like this hinge, like you've already saw what I've told you before, now we're gonna shift gears a little bit. The better way of understanding this word so is probably, it's more of this assumed reality. 
um, that it's not just a possibility, but it rather is a certainty in Jesus. So it's better to be read as since or since there is. And when you read it that way, it says, since there is encouragement in Christ. See, we're no longer condemned. Romans chapter eight tells us that. Since we have comfort from love. See, we have a mutual love for one another and that flows out of the love that we've received from Jesus. And when we understand God's love towards us, it then unifies us together in our love for others. Since we have participation in the spirit. And that's the same word uh, that the Apostle Paul uses in chapter one, verse five of saying uh, this participation, this partnership, this fellowship. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, but it would be the word koinonia. Um, the spirit of God unites us as family and in community. And, and the fact that we have this participation with the spirit, it's the spirit of God that gives us that community. So since we have encouragement in Christ, since we have comfort from love, since we have participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy. So in the gospel, we've received mercy and sympathy. And in turn, we freely give those away as byproducts of the gospel that we've received. What Paul is saying is since you've been given all of this in Jesus, it should motivate you to be unified under the banner of Jesus to love the way that I have loved and to allow your love for others to unify you as a church. He goes on to say here in verse two, complete my joy. There's some other translations that say, make my joy complete or fulfill ye my joy. He wants them to say, he wants them to take notice here of this unity that it happens with the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. And this idea of unity is not uniformity, okay? It's not all of us being in agreement or having the same uh, opinions or the same, uh, the same behaviors or the same actions, but rather it's this common disposition towards the mission of God and what he's called us to. It's kind of like what was, was talked about in Acts chapter two when it said all of the believers had, they had everything in common. The commonality that we have, the unity that we have is in Jesus and that then unifies us. The movement of the gospel is transformed when believers are transformed into the same mind of Jesus. Let me say that again. The movement of the gospel is transformed when believers are transformed into the same mind of Christ. You see, the gospel can't move forward in this world until it first has moved forward in our own lives. He goes on to say in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, that's a great life verse, right? We need reminded of that often, to count others more significant than ourselves. In a world of individualism and consumerism, it's all about us. And we actually have to step back and say, you know, it's not about me. I'm gonna let somebody else take the, take the rein here. He says, do nothing. Selfish ambition is I must have what I want. And it doesn't matter who I hurt in the process that I'm gonna get it. And conceit is, I deserve that in which I want. Both of these are deeply rooted in pride. And what we know about pride is pride was one of the earliest sins. And we could argue that, that pride and selfishness are embedded or rooted in all of the sins that we commit. It's at the very core of every unbelief and every sin that we commit is pride and selfishness. You see, we all have pride, but sometimes it's hard to put our finger on it because 
It's not always striving for attention or, or being the first in line. Pride is the mother of all sins and pride keeps us from asking for help. It's pride that makes us jealous when we don't get our way. It's pride that demands recognition or accolade for something we've done that says, look at me, but then it makes us depressed when we don't get our way. Pride makes us cling to a low self-esteem about ourselves, um, and then we use that um, to, to actually make a, an excuse of our own self-pity. Instead of living in this posture of saying like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm actually being humble because I've got a low self-esteem, it's actually rooted in pride. Pride stops us from apologizing when we're wrong. Pride also makes us blame others for our own failures. You see, Paul goes on to give the remedy for this pride, this selfishness, this conceit. And he paints it perfectly clear. It's seen in the person of Jesus, the selflessness of Jesus. Gospel-centered unity happens in us when we love others to the point of putting their needs above our own. The kingdom of God says those who want to be first must be last. So this paradigm that Jesus talked about of shifting our way of thinking, Jesus modeled that for us. So the last thing we see in this text is a unified humility like Jesus. The first thing we have, a unified boldness in the gospel, a unified love for others, and last, a unified humility like Jesus. So it's always during the, the weeks that I preach that it's like God gives you the opportunities to flesh out the things that you're talking about, right? So um, some of you may have spoke in public before or preached before. Um, if you were ever grown up and said, you know, I have a big fear of public speaking, I'll never do that. Uh, know that you can because I am a byproduct of that same, same statement because it's not me. It's the, the work of Christ in me that gives me the ability to stand in front of people and talk. Um, those of you who know me know that I'm just a rambling, rambling man, you know, so I don't make much sense. Um, and that's good because I'll glory be to Jesus. But uh, the weeks that I preach, um, man, it, it's a great opportunity for, for me to walk through um, and experience the boldness in the gospel. This week, you know, was no, it was no different than any other week. I had opportunities to be bold in the gospel. I had opportunities to love others well. Uh, I had opportunities to be humble like Jesus. And it's like Jesus gives you those things because at the very core of us is unbelief um, and, and we can't do it on our own. So it's this recognition of I need Jesus's humility. I need to look to him for the, the perfect picture of righteousness. And what I've, what I've learned as I continue to grow, it's, it's when God gives you these moments of waking up and opens your eyes, uh, that he desires for us to open our ears and hear what he has to say and to respond and, and choose to live differently because of that. You see, there are a lot of things that happen to us, but actually, I, I think there's a lot of things that God allows to happen for us. God allows things to happen for our lives so that it shapes us and conforms us to the image of Jesus. So all the bad things that happened to you this week are actually God trying to poke in and get your attention. And he's saying, listen, listen, listen. And what he calls us to do in those moments are to hear from him and respond in repentance and faith. 
That's how we grow into the likeness, into the likeness of Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Like I said, he gives us the perfect picture of humility. He said, think this way, live this way, look to Jesus. Your unified boldness and love come from Jesus. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, the very essence of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In Colossians 1.15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And what Jesus did is he emptied himself. He stepped down, did not become lesser of God, but he willingly sacrificed himself by taking on human flesh, becoming in the likeness of man, taking on human form, okay, the incarnation of Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this incarnation of Jesus is this picture of Jesus emptying himself in obedience, you know, in humility, and become, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, the text says. You see, in our day and age, like the, the cross is a picture of faith for many. But throughout time and history, the cross has not necessarily been a picture of faith. It's been a picture of, uh, it's been a symbol of, of torment and suffering. See, the cross was, throughout history, a place where people would be crucified and shamed and publicly mocked and beaten and hung publicly with other criminals. And Jesus chose that route for you and me. Jesus got our sin and we got his righteousness when he went to the cross. Jesus surrendered his will to the will of the Father. Matthew 23 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, King Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that, right? The word so that to me stuck out this week in, in my study. So that is kind of like this weird word that the Apostle Paul uses throughout the book of Philippians, this letter to the church of Philippians. Like he explains what he wants them to, uh, he explains something and then he says, so that this, so he gives them the answer to why they should do it. So he's like answering the question, answering the why. Um, why should you live in, in gospel-centered unity? Why should you live a life worthy of the gospel? So that Jesus' name will be known and understood, that, that people would not only believe, that they would suffer for his sake, and then also here at the, the end, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. It is similar to, to what, what we talked about last week in, in chapter 1, 12 through uh, 26. You see the word so that uh, two other times. In verse 13 it says, um, the, the Apostle Paul saying, what, What's happened to me has rather served to advance the gospel so that, listen, 
he would become known throughout all the imperial guard to all that rest in my imprisonment, okay? So he wants people to know Jesus. Like, here's the why. People would know Jesus. Go to the bottom of, of even page eight in your journals. It says that I, I want to hear about your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. He says the same thing here in, verse, in chapter 127 through the end of 211. He's saying so that. He's giving them the why. He's explaining the why. And for you, all of us, if we don't have a good why, we're not going to follow through, right? Whether it be exercise or whether it be eating right. So I've been trying to eat clean for the last month and a half. Um, and my why right now is because my, because my wife makes that food for me and I have no other choice. That's not my why. If that's my why, then I'm not going to follow through with it, correct? You need to have a why. You hear this all around us. You hear this in the world like, what's your why? Because if you don't have a good why, you're not going to be motivated to follow through. And what, what, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is the why is important. The why is important, but the why has been answered. The why is that Jesus will be known and understood and that he will get the glory. And he goes on to share from his own life experience, like, this is happening. So the why for you and, you and me this morning, as we center our lives on Jesus, as we center our lives on the gospel, the gospel is good news. Do our lives actually show that the gospel is good news? Or what do our lives say the good news is? Does it say that Jesus is the good news or does it say that something else is the good news? You see, Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. He died the death that we deserve. He died on a cross. He was publicly shamed and humiliated and beaten. He died on that cross. He was buried in a tomb and three days later, he rose again, defeating death and hell in the grave. And he is alive, and he provides hope and healing and peace and love to all that believe by faith. So the good news for us is that we can center our lives on that truth. We can, in unity together as the church, center our lives on that truth together. You see, what Jesus desires from us is far more than just us trying to live a moral life. He wants us to surrender fully to him. He gets to call the shots that we would be all in together as a church. You see, complimentary football is the blueprint for success, not only at the collegiate level, but also in the NFL, when everyone is working together, doing their job Gospel-centered unity is also the blueprint for success in the church, where we're living lives worthy of the gospel. We're bold to stand together, to strive together, to share and proclaim the good news of Jesus, arm in arm together for his purposes, that we have a genuine love for others, that we live in a posture of humility as we not try to just be humble ourselves, but we look to Jesus and model the way that who had modeled the way for us. We're going to go to a time of prayer here in the morning, right now, and, and close. Um, but if you're sitting here and you've believed in Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus, then you are a kingdom citizen of heaven. 
And because of that, Jesus is the Lord and leader of your life. He has the supreme authority. And what he desires from us is to live our lives in such a way with boldness, with love and humility, where he gets the glory for it. But he wants us to live our lives in such a way that would be worthy of the gospel. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're on the fence about the whole, like, I can't figure out church, I can't figure out God's word, I can't figure out Jesus, like, I I just don't know. There's hope this morning because Jesus calls us to repentance. And this morning can be that moment for you where you step forward and say, you know what? I'm done trying to live life by myself. I'm going to trust in Jesus and his plan and work and do my part together for the kingdom of heaven. I'm gonna ask you two questions as we we close. What is God saying to you in this text? And what are you gonna do about it? Let's pray. Father, help us to respond to you and to your word in obedience. Father, you've laid out the blueprint for us that we are to live in unity as brothers and sisters who love others, who look to you daily. We take on this posture of humility because Jesus, you stepped down from heaven to earth you took on flesh and you bore our sin and shame. Father, it's in that that we have hope and healing. Jesus, if there's somebody here this morning that has not ever responded in faith to you, I pray that they wouldn't leave today without making that right. Father, allow us to ask ourselves that question. Does the life I live, is it worthy of the gospel? Allow us to reflect and respond to you today. Pray these things in Jesus' name.